Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Hope you're doing well wherever you are. I've spent the last 10 days traveling on vacation with my wife and so kind of settling back into my normal routine, which feels good. I'm someone who loves travel, but I also like my routine and I know we all sort of feel that tension between even when you love travel, you're sort of at the point where you're looking forward to being back home and to the comforts of your home and to, you know, for those of us who like routine too the predictability of that. So getting back into the swing of things and wasted no time, recorded a conversation this morning with yoga teacher and podcaster, Jay Brown, who I'm really excited to have on the show. Jay is someone who, you know, he's really one of the first podcasts I started listening to. And when I think about one of the reasons for starting a podcast, which is what another podcaster said, you know, it's an excuse to have interesting conversations with people you wouldn't otherwise get to talk to. Today's episode is really precisely the kind of many mornings when I'm recording, but it was just really cool for me to be able to record this podcast, having been a fan of Jay's podcast for so long and, and listening to him, and then to be able to be on the phone with him you know, live and asking him questions and steering the conversation. It was, uh, it was a really cool experience and one which I really enjoyed. What One thing that Jay does a great job of is really connecting to his audience. And for that reason, you know, I think a lot of his listeners, myself included, feel like they know Jay. They have a relationship with Jay because he really chooses to share a lot of himself. And it was just really neat to finally make that connection in person. One thing that I want to share, and this will be segueing into my conversation with Jay, is I'm really excited about the fact that after years of studying meditation and yoga, and I've been starting, I have taught yoga sort of off and on in a limited capacity, but I've just gotten a job where I'll be teaching mindfulness, meditation, and yoga to people with addiction. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that work. It's something that, you know, I've really come to appreciate the importance of yoga and really any mindfulness-based practice, whether it's seated meditation or any other kind of meditation. My encounter with those practices had a really immediate and transformational impact when I first moved to Asia eight years ago. And that's only increased over time as I've sort of committed myself to those practices more. But as I, I've mentioned before, and I touched on this a bit in my podcast last week with Paul Garrigan on mindfulness and addiction, I really struggled with addiction myself and substance abuse, specifically addiction to alcohol and abuse of, of that substance. It certainly wasn't the only one, but that one was was really the main one for me, the one that really hooked me and had the, the most detrimental impact on my life. And I was very fortunate to 
have found myself in sort of the constellation of events that push me to move to Asia to encounter meditation and yoga. And obviously it required right decisions on my part as well, but I definitely consider it, you know, I don't use the word grace a lot, but I've talked a little bit about how Ram Das has helped me to appreciate that word in a, in a different way. And I, I do view it as a sort of grace, whether you want to call that just good luck or whatever, but I'm very grateful and continue to be very grateful that I'm on the path that I'm on in my life because of, in no small part at all, because of encountering Buddhism and yoga and meditation. And I really, it brings me immense pleasure to be able to share the value of these practices with the larger audience. I would also include, you know, psychedelics and plant medicine in that and raising awareness and having a thoughtful and critical discussion around all these topics is, is really the, the point of starting this podcast. And I love this podcast and there was still something missing in terms of the day-to-day -day interaction that I wasn't having, especially as someone who was a K-12 history teacher and, and used to teaching people. And I haven't really done that for almost the last two years since I left the classroom. And so to have this opportunity now to work with people and first of all, just be teaching people again in person, in particular, mindfulness and yoga is incredibly rewarding to me, but specifically to be able to work with this population of people who are struggling with addiction is just something that really feels right to me and resonates with me on a personal level. And I'm very grateful to be doing. I would also add that addiction is not something that is substance related, you know, and this is really the Buddhist viewpoint on addiction, which it talks about in terms of craving that certainly, uh, reflects my perspective largely is that people aren't simply addicts or not addicts, you know, and it's, it's, we all have our cravings, you know, and whether it's doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol, it can be the internet, it can be sex, it can be food, it can be work, you can be a workaholic, but a lot of it speaks to that need to fill that hole in you that isn't being filled by something else. And it also speaks to a need to focus our attention outward because we don't want to look within. We don't want to be still. We don't want to take a hard look and be present with the thoughts and feelings that arise when we're by ourselves and we're still and we're alone with our thoughts. And so I share this with you that I'm undertaking this opportunity just to let you in on a little bit of my journey and kind of a tip of the hat to Jay, who is so open about what he does. And I think I can learn from that. Everyone has their own style, but I do think that it creates an opportunity to connect with the audience. And many people aren't interested in that. And I totally get that. A lot of times myself, I want to just fast forward to the interview. So if you want to do that now, or if you've already done that, zero offense taken, I totally get it. But I wanted to share that with you to those of you who are who have been listening perhaps regularly and just to let you in on my journey a bit. And I also say it because it's really relevant to today's guest, Jay Brown, not only because Jay is that kind of 
podcaster who really creates a strong connection with his audience. And that's how, you know, I started listening to his show and eventually had him on here as a guest today. But also because Jay is someone who came to yoga because he was at a point in his life where he had personal crisis of sorts. I mean, he encountered, I'll let you listen to his story, but he was dealing with some of the most difficult things that one would have to deal with in life. You know, the loss of a parent combined with kind of a perfect storm of other events. You know, he's at a difficult point in his life where he's still working himself through things his identity when he was in college and and Jay speaks to this, you know, what happens when we don't really confront and deal with the issues from our past. And so Jay had kind of a crisis that drove him to yoga and that's what did it for me. And I think that's what does it for a lot of people, even if it's not as dramatic as your mother dying or, you know, you're struggling with serious substance abuse. It can be something like, You were working so much and you were super stressed out in your corporate job. This is a common story too. I've heard many people tell they were had a high powered corporate job or whatever kind of job. They worked all the time and then they found yoga and it helped them to find a sense of balance literally and figuratively in their life. And I share it with you because it's where I'm at with my journey right now and the timing seems really right in terms of uh, sort of just accepting this opportunity and and having Jay on the podcast. And so it was really cool to talk with Jay about his own journey and then to really speak with him about certain questions that I've been wrestling with that I knew mirrored Jay's journey because of listening to his podcast. You know, he had been through some really tough injuries and sort of how his practice had evolved, how the way he related to his practice evolved, how it shifted from a more less of a physical and more of a contemplative practice, which is certainly true of my own relationship to yoga. So anyways, couldn't be more excited about today's guest and the conversation that I had for for you. I know you'll enjoy it. Most of the first hour is really about yoga, you know, in the various senses of that term, both Jay's journey and also, you know, some of the reasons why we might practice yoga, not only asana, but also touching on meditation and pranayama. And then the second hour, we come back to that topic a number of times, but we also touch on a number of other topics in the second hour, including, you know, how our yoga can help us relate to what's happening now culturally and politically. And said before, I'll say it again, I am selective about when I try to go there on political issues. Obviously, I've done it a number of times, so it's something that clearly is of interest to me. But I am mindful about doing it, and I'm mindful about doing it on in ways that are only going to be relevant to the mission of the show and to that particular conversation. Given that Jay is also American like myself. And I I know that Jay has not been shy at all on his own podcast about going there in terms of a lot of the conversations around the intersection of yoga, culture, and politics that he discusses on his own podcast. You know, I thought it was safe to go there with Jay and and we did so on a number of occasions. So just giving you the heads up, that's that's really more in the second hour. 
So if you want nothing to do with politics, no worries. You know, you've got at least solid first hour alone where we don't touch it. But I think it's important also that our yoga, our meditation practice, that it's relevant to us, that it's not just something that stays with us on the map. And it's got to go out into the world and help us to make sense of the world in our own life and in our larger culture. And part of that is acknowledging the things we're averse to. And I totally understand the aversion of people to not want to talk about politics at all. So if that's still where you are in your journey, then bless you. Um, It's something that I can't do nearly as much as I, I used to. So it's probably a combination of attachment and aversion. But I offer that explanation just so you know why I'm I'm doing it, is that my intention is to make these conversations around yoga and mindfulness relevant. And apologies to all those listeners who are not in the US and as this was a more US centric conversation in the second half of the podcast discussion, not in the first, but Jay and I both being from the US, we had sort of common ground to to talk about there. So before I segue to Jay, I just want to make a point of thanking yet another supporter on Patreon who has decided to support the podcast and just want to offer a real heartfelt appreciation to John Kane. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast, you and the many other folks who have have pledged recently and who have pledged from the beginning of this podcast are really what is making this podcast possible. Because I do, not only is it an investment of considerable investment of time, but it's also an investment of money. I pay to have the show's production outsourced because it just... I want to have audio quality because that's so important for people listening. So I decided to have that professionally done. And it's really helpful in terms of how it frees my time up, both for other things on the podcast and for my work. So thanks so much to John Kane and and others for supporting. And to those of you who might be considering supporting, would really appreciate it. I want to do everything I can to keep this conversation and this podcast ad-free. Don't want to take any kind of corporate money. And I really like the Patreon model. I like the idea of no ads directly from supporters to artists or to creators and not having anyone else be able to influence the content of the show. So if you enjoy this conversation, please consider going to patreon.com slash hacking the self and supporting the show for just $2 a month or more. You will get access to the additional part of the episode. So I'll release normally the first 45 minutes to an hour of an episode. Depends how long the conversation is for free. And then the remaining part will be available to Patreon subscribers. Also release other kinds of bonus content and early release of episodes as well. So with that said, I'd like to now transition to my conversation with Jay Brown. Jay's going to leave his message at his information at the end of our conversation. I just want to be sure that everyone gets it who might not be a Patreon supporter. So Jay is not only a yoga teacher, but he is the host of Jay Brown Yoga Talks, which is a great podcast that I referenced earlier. 
Jay offers teacher trainings and workshops in addition to classes in his new home state of Pennsylvania. So I would strongly encourage people to check out Jay's website at jbrownyoga.com as well as his podcast, Jay Brown Yoga Talks. For anyone who's interested in yoga, it really is. Both of those are really fantastic resources. So I really enjoy my conversation with Jay. Once again, he's a really just, and you'll, you'll get a feel for this if you listen to his podcast, he's a very sincere and honest and kind and you know well-intentioned guy. And I think that comes across in our conversation. And that really, in a lot of ways, frames our conversation as well. It's a lot about intention, you know, being mindful of your intention for why you're practicing yoga and how that might shape you can relate to your practice. So anyways, with that said, thank you for listening. And now I give you my conversation with Jay Brown. Well, Jay, I'd love to start off by... And there's so much I want to speak with you about, and I'm sure you're used to kind of giving your background as to why you got into yoga at this point is almost like a, a pitch. But I, I do think it's important, if you don't mind stating it again, just for people who might be joining us who haven't heard your story before. And I also think it's really going to serve as an important frame for some of the topics we touch on later in the conversation. So if you if you wouldn't mind talking about you know, what brought you to the practice of yoga for our listeners? Sure. I, I think that these days, the way things are, sometimes you have to kind of start there. I always do in any workshop, sort of telling everybody like, why do I have the audacity to sit up here in front of you? You know, because <laughs> in the old days, I think it was much more tied into gurus and disciples and lineages. So you would cite a guru or a lineage that you came from and that very much explained in a way uh, why you were sitting there. And nowadays, I think, like we were just talking about, like the transparency that you show about being really clear, well, this is where I learned this from, and this is how I got to it, and this is why I do it this way, is sort of the only way you can, I don't know, be credible, I think. So I'm happy to share with you some. I think for me, I always have to say that my yoga practice starts when my mom died. I was 16 years old when that happened. She had leukemia and you know she had been sick for some time prior to her death. She was terminal. But I, at that time, was 16 years old and was like starring in the school play and not at all emotionally capable of dealing with that situation. And I can't say that other members of my family were <laughs> much either. So no one was really there to help me too much. And really people let me to my own. And for the months leading up to her death, I did not visit her at all. And I do remember there was one attempt made. I have a distinct memory of being in my car parked in the parking lot for maybe 30 minutes and then just driving off and not going in. I just... And I just couldn't go into the hospital room to see her. And I didn't until one night I basically got woken up and taken to the hospital because they, they weren't sure whether she was going to make it through the night. And then I was brought into her hospital room to say goodbye to her. And 
something happened in that room. You know, I was, I have these memories. Uh, my mom was in a very chaotic state. She was saying things. I, I remember her saying, I'm not ready to go. And I remember my sister breaking down and running to her. And I remember standing near her bed and there's this moment there. And I just, I was a very hyper 16 year old. Like I think nowadays you might've diagnosed me with ADHD. Like I just, I don't remember being calm minded in my childhood ever really. And in this moment, standing next to her bed, a calm came over me and I went to my mom and I stopped her from being crazy. And she looked at me and I, I said, mom, I'm going to do great things in my life and I'm going to make you proud of me. And I'm not going to come see you in the hospital again. And I told her I loved her and gave her a kiss and I left the room. And that was the last time that I saw her. And she passed away two weeks later. I, not too long after that, you know, I finished high school and I moved to New York. And by the time I got to college, things just started to go south for me. Like I, things weren't going very well for me. I I'd studied acting and I don't know if you know about acting training, but it does a real good job of like breaking you down emotionally. So you'll be really available. And, but it, but it doesn't do much to build you up at all. So I went full into it. Like I remember like my final piece, my first year of college was like this performance piece that I did where I, I stripped myself naked and projected images of my mother holding me as an infant on my chest. <laughs> and I was like, I went all the way there, just like ripped it all open. But like when I did that, it, it actually sent me on a pretty bad downward spiral, you know, like I just felt like I was broken and there was something wrong with me and I had been deeply wronged by life. And I, don't know, I just got to a place where I felt like either I'm going to have to kill myself or I'm going to have to find another way to live. And, you know, when it came to the, the possibility of taking my own life, all I could think of was that promise I made to my mom. And I just didn't seem like an option because I had done that, which again happened in a weird moment when it just sort of came from nowhere at 16. And in any case, it saved me. And I determined that I would have to find some other way to live. And I had this friend, I remember, and she, she asked me, well, what do you want to do? And like, I rattled off like 10 things I didn't want to do. And she said, no, like, what do you want to do? What do you, can you think of anything that brings you some amount of joy. And I could only really identify two things at that time. I could, I knew that I enjoyed playing my bass guitar just in and of itself brought me joy. And I knew that when I went to these yoga classes, when I was in college, I took these yoga classes, I felt better after them. Like I never felt great, but there was a marked difference. And I could notice that I felt better after taking a yoga class. It was like one of the only things. <laughs> and, and so she said, well, I think you should do those two things every day. And I just, I felt like that was a really good idea. So I started doing that. That's smart advice. It really was. <laughs> so I just started doing those two things every day. And I started taking yoga classes at the Jiva Mukti Yoga Center on 2nd Avenue. It was like 1994, I believe. And at that, 
it was pretty old school, I got to say. I mean, I I didn't know anything about anything. Like I didn't have any frame of reference for yoga from my childhood or anything. And at that time it was so formative still, you know. It really it wasn't at all mainstream like it is now. So Jiva Mukti was this really eclectic place in the East Village. And there was no Jiva Mukti method yet, though. Like there was no what we know Jiva Mukti yoga now. It was just a whole bunch of really interesting, again, eclectic teachers. I met Leslie Kamenoff there. I met a woman named Allison West, who I studied with there. Eddie Stern came through there. Sean Korn came through. Like every, there's all these people who kind of came through there. And, you know, Jiva Mukti, it was really a mix of the styles. And I first gravitated to the Ashtanga Vinyasa influence. I just liked that high intensity. It was when Ashtanga first came over. Patabi Joyce had made like a trip or two over Sharon and David from Jiva Mukti had brought him over for some workshops. And Ashtanga was starting to become a thing a little bit more. And I just liked how intense it was. And, you know, when you think that there's something wrong with you or like you're broken, torturing your body makes perfect sense. <laughs> it just seems like the right thing to do. And I, I really enjoyed that practice. So I, I went into it pretty deep. And then at some point I, I injured myself. I blew out a knee, like working on poses from the third series in a very reckless manner. And that was a big epiphany for me because I had already started making my living teaching by that point. So it just became really obvious that like, I need this knee to work in order for me to be able to do my job. And I asked the teachers I was studying with at the time about it, you know, why did I get injured and what should I do about it? And, you know, I got kind of what was a stock answer there. And I guess sometimes still is not as much anymore, which was you need to have better alignment. So you know, the reason you got hurt is that you weren't, you weren't practicing with good alignment. And if you had better alignment, then you wouldn't get injured. So I went and studied a younger method because that's where you're supposed to go to learn alignment and spent some time focusing on learning a younger alignment principles. And I think did an okay job of that, was able to do some level four alignment. But honestly, for me personally, I think in certain ways, that kind of practice made things worse for me because it was sort of like you never really got there. It was always more microtonal. <laughs> there was always more. And and while I did gain a lot from both Ashtanga Vinyasa and Iyengar practice, like in terms of just discipline and you know getting myself more under control because I felt so out of control, but I still had like lots of pain and was still quite uh, disillusioned and unhappy. And the wound, the initial wound of um, my mom's passing was still not at all resolved. And I do remember a specific instance when I realized like, this is not panning out what I'm doing. I, I was, I was doing a demonstration in class. There was like a number of really fancy poses that I would do. One of which was like a handstand press. So like when everybody would go to the wall to do their handstand, I would stay in the middle of the room. And teachers would often ask me to demonstrate that. And there was this one class where a teacher asked me if I would do that for the class. And I did my big handstand press. And then I came down and then everybody applauded. And the teacher said, 
this is what you're working towards. And, you know, right in the moment, I felt pretty good about it. I felt like I'm the only one in the room who could do it. And I was getting like some acclaim for that. But on the way home, I was just totally miserable because I just I had all this chronic pain, both like physically and mentally. And I just thought, if this is what we're working towards, we're totally screwed. You know, like there's got to be more, there's got to be more to it than me being able to do that handstand press. So I almost left yoga at some point there. Like I just felt like it wasn't working. And then I had another friend who suggested that we take a trip to India. And I didn't really know what else to do with myself. So I thought, why not? We saved up some money and we went to India for three months in 1998. And I just, I didn't want to go to study yoga necessarily. Like I didn't want to go to an ashram and just be in the ashram and have to follow all the rules the whole time, you know? So I came up with this idea that we were just, we were going to travel around basically with like a backpack and a let's go travel guide. And we're not going to any tourist areas. So wherever like there wasn't Westerners, you know, so we didn't go to the Taj Mahal or anything. And wherever we went, my idea was to ask the local people, who's the local teacher? Like who do the local people go to here? That's who I want to study with. And, you know, most of the teachers I encountered in my estimation were, were frauds to some degree that they were really just kind of capitalizing off tourist trade. But I did meet this one Swami in Rishikesh who I spent 10 days with and he really turned things around for me. Um, he, as he said, what he told me was that he lived up in a cave most of the year and he came down during the raining season to teach. And he had studied at the Bihar school, which is a very classical school in India. And then he had spent time with Osho, actually, in India before Osho. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that new Netflix documentary. Everyone's talking about it, and I can't wait to watch it. My wife and I are like, yeah, it's it's on our list for sure. I have friends who are not even into yoga who are well, talking about it. You got to watch it. It's totally mind-blowing. But he spent time with him when he was in India before he came to America. And this Swami is just really, like, I always talk about, like, our first lesson together because... You know, the first thing he said was, do you know Danyurasana Bopos? And I said, yes. And he said, show me, please. And then I did like my biggest, fanciest feet on my head variation. And his response was, ah, yes, children also do very well. So he was very unimpressed, you know, by like my displays of physical prowess, which in New York was giving me applause and being touted as advanced. And he was equating. He's poking your ego, right? Because he knew that's what you needed. Maybe, but you know what really was like, he then really rerouted and we ended up doing like the most ridiculously simple forms you could imagine, like rotations with your wrist or whatever, which for me at the time felt like nothing because I was like this 20 something year old power yoga guy. So just doing wrist rotations felt like, like a waste of my time, honestly. And so we would do these simple things and then he would have me sit for a minute and then he would say, okay, open your eyes and tell me, he would say, how do you feel? And, you know, for a long time, I would talk a lot and I would describe like what I noticed about the range of motion and like, just like, you know, like yoga teachers trying to sound smart, you know, like that's what I was doing. 
And he was getting very annoyed, you know, like, and then eventually like I came in and I just thought he was like another fraud. Like I was thinking in my mind that morning before the lesson, like I'm not learning anything from this guy. This is like a waste of my time. You know, like why am I spending my money on this, this, these lessons? And then I walked in with that kind of cloud over me and we did some simple thing. And then he made me sit and then he said, open your eyes. And he said, tell me, how do you feel? And I kind of snapped a little and I went, I don't know how I feel. And he smiled really big and he said, good. It just hit me. Like the guy had been asking me the same question for like days. And I was like talking and talking and talking. I just never answered him because I really didn't know. I, I didn't know how I felt about anything. I didn't know how I felt from my practice. I don't know how I felt about myself or life or anything. I just didn't know how I felt at all. I knew how to chant the Gayatri mantra and I knew how to do a handstand press and I knew how to teach a yoga class that was impressive in New York City, but I didn't know how I felt. And, you know, nobody, nobody had ever asked me that. And I'd studied with some pretty renowned teachers, you know, that's just not what it was about. It wasn't that kind of inquiry. And the really cool thing is, I believe that the Swami saw that I got it. And he really changed the lessons after that. And then it was different. And he would ask me, you know, what do you want to do today? And I'd say, I don't know. I slept weird. My neck hurts. And he'd say, oh, when my neck hurts, I do this. You try. And How does that feel to you? Does it feel better? And I say, yeah, it feels a little good. And he said, okay, let's go get pizza. <laughs> and you'd have to imagine, you know, like there's no pizza in India. Like I've been there for months eating rice and dal. And the Swami says, let's go get pizza. And I think what was happening is like he knew I was from New York. He knew that in New York, we ate pizza and he actually knew a place in Rishikesh where you could get pizza. I mean, it was terrible pizza granted, but it, <laughs> I think he was trying to communicate something to me about yoga, a different idea than I had in my mind. You know, I had this idea of the eight limbed path and I'm doing my asana and I'm doing my pranayama and I'm doing my meditation and gosh darn it, I'm going to get to samadhi if it kills me because if I could get to samadhi, then maybe I won't have all this pain in me or whatever, you know? So it's like trying to get, trying to transcend it all. And that's what I thought yoga was. And then the Swami was like, this totally different idea. It was sort of like, oh, you need to do a little something. You do a little something, you know? Is this, what I came to learn later, which I didn't know at the time, was a tantric viewpoint, you know? It was a tantric understanding. Like I was sort of operating on this weird mishmash that we've gotten. Like I had Christopher Wallace on my podcast and he talked about this, about how all the translations of the sutras that we have gotten as Westerners are really a mix of like Brahmanical transcendent teachings and tantric live in the world teachings. And they don't actually go together. Like, but they've been mishmashed. Not at all. They don't go together. And Hatha Yoga is a tantric practice. Well, for some, some <laughs> you know, yeah, you, I consider it to be, yeah. Well, it's funny though. So you're describing, and I'm familiar with Christopher. I've done some of his online courses, both on Patanjali's Yoga Sutras and Recognition Sutras, which is a tantric text by Shemaraja. And, you know, it's interesting what you described, right? For those of our listeners who, who might not recognize it because you don't, because perhaps they don't practice as much yoga, what you described is your view of yoga this classic eightfold path, it comes from a guy named Patanjali who supposedly wrote this text called the Yoga Sutra. And I mean, that is what you're taught conventionally in your 
200 hour yoga teacher training, right? It's you do Patanjali in the yoga sutras mm -hmm. and you read what asana is like in Patanjali. And then when you think, well, it's this tiny little role, right? It's just preparing your body for meditation. So if this is the view of yoga in Patanjali, to what extent does that map onto what we're practicing in the 21st century in the West? You know, very little. And I'm not saying that, of course, what they were doing in medieval tantric India was still very different, but so much of what we're practicing, you know, whether it's Kundalini, chakras, all the systems of energy is very clearly derived from that tantric and not a classical system, but somehow this has gotten totally mixed up where Patanjali is the person we revere, not that he's not worthy of respect, but he's become this central figure and it doesn't really make sense philosophically. That seems to be Harisha's thesis as well, from what I can gather. Well, what I talked with Harish, well, my big question for him was, is like, you know, I always say like, I've got like five translations of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras sitting on my shelf over here right now. And depending on which one I pick up, I can get a totally different idea about what yoga is. So it just, it seems to me that like the translation of the Sanskrit is open to wide interpretation. And, you know, I talked with him about that and He's a Sanskrit scholar and translates the text himself. And he had a bunch of ideas about that. But he was basically saying that the text in and of itself is what you'd call a dualistic text. So the goal, as stated in the words, is that you're supposed to like get away and beyond this like worldly life of being in time and space to like get to some other consciousness. So the trajectory is like an up and out trajectory. And what happened was, is there was this like tantric upswell, which was a different idea about yoga, where you're not trying to get up and out and transcend, you're going inwards. And this is coming straight from Harish Wallace, like you go inwards to the center of your being and you, you derive like the harmony of the universe there. And then you come back to here with that. So it's like this inward and then back to here thing, not this up and out thing. And that's a very like broad way of saying it, but that was such a popular idea of like being here as opposed to getting like becoming a monk or a sadhu and like renouncing this life and being an ascetic that it became so popular that he said after a certain point in history, there's like, he said, there's no favorable analysis of Patanjali's yoga sutras. Like everybody starts to map this tantric idea onto what was originally not a tantric a text. So I asked him, I was like, so the text is- No, it was from Samkhya, right? Yes. Which is fundamentally dualistic. Well, it's interesting that you say that, you know, and this is- But though Richard Freeman will give you a different well, see, take on that. That's it, what I was just going to say, yeah. because- Yes. I figured it was. Well, yeah. Because most of the time, the majority of translations of Samkhya are absolutely dualistic. Like, I don't see how they couldn't be. But in my own personal inquiry and study, I have found three different versions of Samkhya translation, actually. And you know how you can tell the difference? It's the number of principles, right? So normally, like, there's 25 principles in the Samkhya system. But I've also seen translations where there's 24 principles, and then I saw another one where there was 26 principles. And of course, and this is really deep. Are these I don't know the how, tattvas? 
Well, here's the thing. I don't know how deep you want to get into the weeds on this, but I mean, it all hinges around the principle of Purusha and Prakriti, right? Which come from Sankhya, right? So in the 25 principle version, 25th principle is Purusha and the 24th principle is Prakriti. But in the 24 version, Purusha and Prakriti are on the same line. So the 24th principle is Purusha Prakriti, one thing. And then there's a 26th principle where Purusha and Prakriti are separate. And then there's a God principle, like a Brahman on top of it. So these to me is It's like funny. The- Tantric Shaivism does the same thing with the 36 tattvas with Shiva and Shakti. You know, mm-hmm. they'll play around with it in different systems. It's it's Shakti, then Shiva at one, and certain systems there's like on the same level. And then the real sort of secret thing, which Harish has talked about, and I've also studied it with, you know, Paul Muller Ortega, who Harish studied with when he was younger, was um there's sort of like an unspoken like zero at the top. And that's Shiva and Shakti bound together, you know, in her form. And so it's funny, they've just taken it and iterated on the earlier kind of Samkhya model, obviously. Yeah, I just think that what I've noticed is that there's these different viewpoints. You know, I sort of say there's a Don dual or a dual, and then there's lots of variations within that, of course. But depending on that viewpoint, like everything goes from there in terms of how you translate a text or how you even do breathing and moving exercises. And that was the big shift for me that this Swami, you know, sparked. And when I got back to New York, I basically stop going to the yoga classes I was going to. Like they just didn't feel like yoga anymore. And I started doing exclusively self-practice at home. And I just, I felt like I had permission because I had met this Swami guy in India to like break the rules that I had learned. Like all the like traditions I had studied have pretty strict kind of things that you follow. And I had felt like, oh, now I get to decide how do I feel and choosing practice that was moving that in a direction that I wanted to go. And that really shifted things for me. And then I found that book, The Heart of Yoga by TKV Desikachar. I'm sure you're familiar with it. And something in that book connected to what this Swami was teaching me. And I went to meet that the guy who edited that book, Mark Whitwell, who is a, a helpful influence on me as well. And he kind of clued me into a bunch of stuff. Like he spoke way better English than the Swami and you know, told me about Krishnamacharya and like pointed me in all these directions. And then I found Georg Forstein and I've just been kind of rolling since then. But at some point I did like, I made this shift where like I was still teaching power yoga classes to pay my rent, but at home I was doing this different thing. And I was too scared to bring what I was doing in my personal practice to like the classes I was teaching because I just didn't think anybody would be into it. And Mark Whitwell was the one who said it to me. He said, Hey man, if you don't, if you don't teach what you practice at home, you're a fraud. And I was like, shit, he's right. (laughs) And so I just made a big shift. I actually had this woman, I had Skylar Grant on the podcast from Wanderlust and she, I didn't even know this, but she taught at the center that I was teaching at when I made that shift. And she said, I remember when you did it, it was like, kind of a big deal. Like I just shifted and like a bunch of people weren't into it and complained, but then like a whole bunch of new different people showed up. And since then I've just been really focused on this, you know, this other idea about practice and why I do it, just really getting off of like pushing my body. And it's been some process 
to get to it, but more and more uh, that's kind of been my thing. And now I've got this like slogan, gentle is the new advanced because I feel like I'm a little bit of a bridge generation. Like I have one foot in the old days where, you know, yoga was just like, you go inwards and have inner peace, you know? And it was like happening in people's living rooms and church basements. And then I've kind of come into my adulthood as yoga came into the mainstream. So I just, I watched the internet happen and started my blog shortly after WordPress hit, you know, and, and just have been sort of like, again, going along with the boom of yoga into the mainstream. So I started in my early twenties. Now I'm in my forties and I have two kids and, you know, I owned a yoga center for 10 years that I sold eight months ago. And I have this podcast, which you know about. So it's just sort of been like, I don't know, at this point, I feel like the profession of yoga and my life feel very closely linked Sure, just because that's all I kind of know. I, I want to, gosh, there's so much I want to talk about with you. So I want to get into, because I'm familiar with how your practice has shifted. And I don't know if you remember this because you and I corresponded maybe almost a year ago when I first started listening to your podcast. And I shared with you a bit about my own transition. I had something similar where I started getting injured. And I made a shift as well. And even though I've been practicing with Richard Framing a Mary Taylor and doing an intense Ashtanga practice, I practice with them more because I love the way they teach sort of beyond the asana, you know, the philosophy and the mantra and yoga is a very holistic practice. But I've studied with another teacher as well, Simon Borg-Olivier, who really got me thinking about the practice of yoga and specifically asana in a very, very different way. So I want to get into that, but I also want to do it in a way where we're addressing the underlying questions because the really important underlying questions, and you wrote a great, I read your recent blog post that you just published the other day. And I loved it because, let's see, it's called, Mm -hmm. yeah, the unexplainable importance of yoga. And I'll include a link to it in the show notes, but I've written a couple of posts too on similar topics. And I think our view of yoga, like what yoga is, you know, what your asana practice looks like. I mean, first of all, let's just acknowledge like, we're all different, right? So we all have different body types and that's the first thing to acknowledge. It also makes sense that the same person, their practice is going to change. So the fact you have a physical practice different in your 40s that's you know different than your 20s makes a whole lot of sense. The other thing I think that's so important to address though, it really depends so much on your view of what yoga is and why are you practicing? And those are two things that I really try to come back to a lot is your intention for yoga. Like, are you expecting a sweat? Is it about a workout? Is it about even wellness in a larger sense? Or if it's not, if it's about something different, how does that affect your view of what yoga is? And I I think that can explain a lot of the people who either resonate with or, or don't react well to this sort of style that you offer of gentle yoga. So I'm wondering what you can talk about in terms of, you you certainly alluded to it already, but aside from differences philosophically about dualism versus non-dualism, how would you describe what 20-year-old Jay would say about what is yoga and why do you practice versus what you view yoga now is and why you practice? Wow. Well, I mean... I don't think 20-year-old Jay like <laughs> was inquiring all that deeply. I was just kind of desperate and out of control. 
But I do think that what we're talking about for me does kind of boil down to just like a context for practice. And, you know, sometimes I say it like this, like when, when somebody comes who is maybe who, who's not so familiar with the concepts of Purusha and Prakriti and non-duality and duality, which is the, the vast majority of people who show up to my class, I wouldn't, I would not start with that. I always say that, you know, it's about a mentality thing. So for one, I would say actually first, it, there's a technical distinction, which is my practice is entirely breath-centered now in a way that it wasn't before. I think that I did a lot of ujjayi pranayama when I was an Ashtanga person, but it was always secondary to the movement. So you're kind of flowing and kind of moving in an aerobic way and then trying to put ujjayi pranayama or, or more regulation of breath on top of that. And that becomes a battle. And one of the fundamental distinctions, which does come from the TKB desk, Char Krishnamachar tradition, is, is really making breath first and only having so much body that is supported by that. So I think one of the biggest technical distinctions between what I was doing in my early 20s and what I do now is just that alone, is the way that uh, breath is much more at the forefront of what I do. But to more to your question, I think, is that the other approaches to practice that I studied in, they all have something in common that what I do now uh, does not, is that on some level, it's about seeing how far you can go. So you hit a physical edge in whatever you're doing, and then you're supposed to see if you can do more than that. Because doing more, going farther than where that perceived edge is, is how you become more advanced or more liberated or more realized or enlightened or more strong or more flexible or like whatever you want from yoga is on the other side of that edge. It's not on this side of that edge. So there's like mentality that goes along with that. And a lot of times it's like reaching for your fullest potential or working to improve yourself and, you know, become the better you, you know? And I would say that I don't think that those mentalities are like bad or anything, especially like if, if you want to run marathons or climb mountains, or it's important to you to be able to do intricate body positions, then, you know, like a no pain, no gain, like take it to the edge and beyond mentality is very effective at accomplishing those goals. But if what you want is to just like have less pain and feel okay about the fact that you exist. You know, like the reason that you're doing the breathing and moving exercises is you just, you want to like be okay with your existence, then pushing your body as hard as you can to reach your fullest potential or become enlightened is counterproductive to that purpose. So that's kind of what I was talking about in that blog post this week is that a lot of times there's these kind of goals and you see people talking about that, like being able to do the pose or everybody's showing handstands and all the stuff that they can do, you know, like these goals they've reached. But the question is why? Like what, what does that actually serve for somebody, you know? And that question of purpose, I think really ends up defining what you do. It ends up shaping the experience and you get different results depending. Yeah, I think one thing and what you just said really resonates with my own experiences, just really being intentional about why you're doing 
what you're doing. So if you decide that those things are for you, that's great. But I guess just really being intentional about it, including about the possible risks. You know, one thing that one of my teachers, Simon Borg Olivier, pointed out was, you know, we're taking this system that was created by people who had very different bodies. You know, traditional Indians, for one thing, never sat in chairs. <laughs> so they had very open hips, right? They also carried around things, mm-hmm. quite heavy things on their head. So the idea of doing a headstand wasn't such a big deal for them because they had very strong necks from carrying things around on their head. They walked around all the time instead of sitting down all day, you know, all these different things. And then all of a sudden we have really tight hips because we sit in chairs all the time, all day at work, going to and from work, eating on the toilet. I mean, you name it, we're always sitting down. And then we go from that to these extreme hip openers, right? Or which, which I love. I mean, they feel great, but Simon did get me. Th- I mean, I've swore off. I don't use the word hip opener anymore. After studying with Amy Matthews, it is clear to me that I don't really want to open joints. <laughs> like joints connect me together, you know, like. Like it, the, the the language is problematic, but I mean, I know what you mean and I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, you know, when you talk about sitting in chairs, that was actually like a big epiphany for me when I was in India, because as you, if anybody who's traveled there knows, like you, you're in a squat position quite a bit in India, like to just do anything, like to eat or to shit or do anything, you're squatting. And, you know, I was like a yoga guy, so I could sit in a squat for a long time and hang like not all Westerners can, you know? But while I would be sitting like along the banks of the Ganges River in squat, you know, having to chill them with these sadhus, I would look around and notice that their knees would be like up, like near their ears almost. And my knees were like more like near my shoulders. And I just thought, oh, look at that. Like it just seemed that their bodies had some different construction to it, given that they spent that much time in squats. And I thought, maybe that's why I blew out my knee trying to do Marichas in a D, you know, <laughs> which is what you're saying. Yeah. Totally. And it's like, it's, I, I think somewhere along the way, we forget, like I injured my, my neck in a headstand one time and it's like, I never did that again, you know? And it's like, would I learn something by going back and facing my fears? Yeah. I think that's an important principle to do. But I think I could do that with any number of other things. I mean, if you mess up a headstand, you don't even want to think about what could happen, how wrong that could go for you. You know, and it just, it doesn't align with the fundamental reasons. Like if I'm doing this for physical, mental, emotional health or to go deeper into meditation, I don't need to do a headstand to do any of those things. No, and I don't teach them anymore. Like I did them for a long time. That's the only pose that ever injured someone in my class and they left that class and I was doing it with him. And at that time I was very anal about alignment and, and in my eye, he was doing it totally correctly. There's no reason why he should have gotten injured. He still like pinched a nerve in his neck and had to leave. And then I ran into him a couple of weeks later on the street and he said, I'll never go to another yoga class again. And I just, I felt horrible. And I said, that's never going to happen again. And so I swore him off. I wrote a piece like, uh, 
of sort of going against the king and queen of asana. So I don't teach shoulder stand and headstands anymore, which was kind of like a big deal to a lot of people. But for me, kind of to what you said, is they don't serve the purpose of the practice that I teach for most people. Like I wouldn't take any pose off the table. I've said this many times, like I believe that I could teach the 26 poses from the Bikram method in a way that was therapeutically oriented if I'm allowed to like make changes to alignment and like not stick to their script, you know, like no pose in my mind is inherently injurious in and of itself. Any pose could be done safely. There's no reason why it couldn't be, whatever it is, like the human body is miraculous. But at the same time, for me, I'm just making a choice. Like I'm, the place that I'm starting is to say, my practice is not about pushing my body as hard as I can. And if you start there, that means it gets to be about something else. And then me, I'm really going, I'm really, it's ironic, but I'm really kind of going back to what to me are some of the essences. For me, it's about fixing and releasing my attention. And what I'm fixing and releasing my attention on is an engagement of my breath and body that is in sync together in a strong, calm, balanced way. Stira Sukha. That's one of the only things written in the sutras about asana, right? Stira Sukha. So what does that even mean, Stira Sukha? It's a totally subjective thing. That's kind of what I was writing about in the post this week, that like what it, what it feels like to be strong and calm and balanced while you're doing a breathing and moving exercise might mean something different to you than it means to me. But like whatever it means, however you define it to be for you, that that qualitative thing of feeling strength that is easeful it becomes something that you would know how to do and that you could do it with consistency. So you could feel strong and calm and balanced in yourself when you want to. Now, that idea in my experience is often better experienced when your body is not overtaxed. Like sometimes people have those pictures of them doing crazy poses and then they like say, like words, poise, equanimity or something like, and it's supposed to tout like, that you need to have that kind of poise to be able to do that kind of pose. But in my experience, when you're that kind of um, more extreme physicality, it doesn't lend itself at all to what I'm talking about, you know? Yeah, no, I think I, I totally agree with you. And I think that sort of the key word we're kind of almost dancing around is physiology. You know, it's, it's not only what it's doing to you physically, it's really what is the practice doing to your nervous system? And that's one thing that Simon really got me thinking a lot about is, you know, you can do a practice in a way economically sound. Let's say, you know, for the sake of argument, you're doing all the bandhas, you're doing Ujjayi breathing, you're doing all these things. Now, you can take undoubtedly a lot of very advanced practitioners are still doing that because they're so advanced and they can do it in a very calm and easeful way because they've done it so many times. But you look around most Ashtanga classes or most Vinyaka vinyasa classes. And even among people who are quote unquote advanced, right? They're doing all the advanced poses. It's not easeful, right? Like there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of stress. And the question is, what is that? Then you're doing that after, let's say a day of work, which probably had a lot of tension and a lot of stress in your workplace. And then you're doing a yoga practice filled with a lot of tension and a lot of stress. And 
it's not only what is that doing to you physically, it may be a great workout, but what is that doing to you physiologically and what's that doing to you mentally? Because your nervous system is so deeply connected, not only with your body, but with your consciousness, with your mental states, right? That's why pranayama takes you so deep into meditation. And I think that's the real kind of the missing piece that I totally didn't get before. People talk to a lot about yoga anatomy, but I think it's the physiology piece that's so important. And I would think that's something that your style of yoga, asana specifically, is really cultivating is sort of this parasympathetic state of the nervous system versus a more sympathetic state. I think that's right. And I just recently had Peter Blackaby on my podcast. He has this amazing new book called Intelligent Yoga. And it, it's very much what you're talking about. Like he's very much into it being about the nervous system in many regards. And that has been my experience too. Like I started to realize that some of the ideas that I had about how you open a body, that's why I nitpicked you about hip openers. They weren't really proving to be true. They weren't really how it happens. I even remember like if you go on YouTube, you can watch these videos of like they do like the chiropractic adjustments when people are under anesthesia. <laughs> That's kind of crazy. But like basically what they've found is that like if somebody has like a limited range of motion in their shoulder, let's say, right? Like they can't lift their arm past a certain height when they're like in their normal waking life. If you put them under anesthesia, you can actually move their arm with like almost full rotation. Like like when you turn off a little something in someone's brain when they're under anesthesia, they have these full ranges of motion in their body that they they can't have when they're awake. So what's making us tight or making our bodies held in the way that they're held is not how long our muscles are. So this idea of like pulling on our muscles to make them longer so that we'll be more open doesn't really pan out. And the way Peter talks about it, he talks about neural mappings and how we've just, we've lost certain neural mappings. One of his great examples is like, there's like these tribes in like the Amazon rainforest where they walk around the forest with no shoes on and they don't make any sound. So like if you and I were to walk through the forest with our shoes up, we'd be like <laughs> making all this noise. But their feet are, the neural maps of their feet are so sensitized. They can walk through the forest with no sign. It's crazy. But so a lot of what Peter's talking about and a lot of what I think I came to in my own practice and what I'm doing in my teaching is what you're talking about. It's like using practice as a way to, I don't know, become more aware of patterns and find a way to find this more, uh, this parasympathetic response, right? So that my body functions more efficiently or something, you know, it's most about easing that which has gotten in the way of its own inherent functioning, which is very much in line with the tantric viewpoint we were talking about earlier, you know, but I think you're right. I think, and he's saying that even the science is going in that direction too. But I'm always a little bit worried about the word physiology because sometimes, and it's sort of what I was writing about in the blog post, like people want to boil it down in a scientific lens. And I totally understand that. But I really feel that in my experience, as much as I, I think it's important and vital to do scientific studies, and I'm, I'm not suggesting we wouldn't look to understand things through a scientific lens, there's some element to it that is, for lack of any other word, a magic. 
And I feel that it is a pragmatic thing to still hold that. I don't think it's a naive thing to allow for this element of that which is not explained fully and could not through science alone. <laughs> and as I was trying to get at it, I think it's a little bit controversial because people really want to be able to boil it down into some kind of objective metric. And that's what everything's about when it comes to safety or it comes to new training standards. Everybody wants an objective metric. And I just, for me, I think it's very problematic. Like yoga just doesn't lend itself at all to that. Yeah, totally. I, having said what I said, you know, I totally second what you just mentioned. I think on the one hand, it's important to understand things in terms of science and in frame things that way for people who need that. And I enjoy those conversations too. I understand it. I enjoy understanding what's kind of happening to my body and science can explain, explain that. But I think it's important to acknowledge the limitations as well of the Western scientific model and approach and even just the limitations of rationality and language generally. You know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about psychedelics as well. And it's a similar thing with psychedelics. You can tell me what's happening in my brain, what neurotransmitters it's working on. They can tell you the exact serotonin receptor. And that's great. It's fascinating. I'm glad that helps us to understand why it helps people with depression, for example. And perhaps that can help us to give more access to people with depression who could benefit from these resources. But that doesn't explain what's happening in terms of my experience when I'm on ayahuasca at all. You know, like you can't explain that in terms of what's happening in your brain at all. Yeah. The fact that people on DMT see the same creatures, even though they've never met each other or ever talked, that's totally. weird. You know what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> going on. Oh, yeah. definitely. And the whole, it, that ayahuasca is like this feminine presence, you know, all these different things and the type of animals that you see again and again are either snakes or they're leopards. You know, it's like, yeah, there's something that can't be explained there. I haven't done ayahuasca or DMT uh, in my life, but what I would say is that in my experience that I can do the same poses in the same order every day with the same degree of precision. And one day it'll heal me and one day it'll hurt me, even though it was the same degree of precision on both days. And the difference is something very subtle that happens in me and how I am with myself while I'm doing it. And there's a certain alchemy to that of everything about how I'm living my life up until the moment when I have that practice, you know, and that's exciting to me. That's interesting to me. And that's what I feel like everybody's trying to get to, like for all of like the bad press about yoga, for all of the commodification of yoga, for all the goat yoga and all the, like all the fitnessization of yoga and people hurting themselves doing these crazy positions without a sense of purpose behind it, it still works for a lot. Like it still helps people find directions in their lives and they don't understand fully why. And I've seen that happen. And in some regards, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, if, 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 if someone can have a practice that helps them like it did for me like it's what turned that deep wound of my mom into this blessing that makes me feel like i could deal with anything and 
I can't fully explain how doing simple, simple breathing and moving exercises that don't look like much on Instagram feed, I, don't, I can't explain how, that, how those simple breathing and moving exercises could do that for me, but they did. And I'm just, you know, I continue to enjoy trying to figure it out as it seems like you do. But for whatever it is that we might be able to pin down about it, there's always a little element of, you know, the magic. <laughs> I think that's okay. Totally. You know, I just had this Native American woman on my podcast, Mary Porter, who's, you know, runs this peyote church. And she basically said the same thing for peyote. She's like, you know, you can do all your scientific studies, like if that <laughs> makes you feel better. And, you know, I don't, she wasn't knocking it. You know, she thinks it's a good thing, but like, we don't need your double blind randomized control trial to validate the wisdom of a tradition we've been using like peyote for thousands of years. And <laughs> I think that's true. And I think not only do you not need the approval, it's like that method won't capture it. It just, it can't capture it by nature. You can't explain what's going on totally, whether we're talking about psychedelics and the randomized control model, whether we're talking about yoga, just rationally, like there is, I think alchemy is a great word, you know, makes me think of Carl Jung and the way he wrote about alchemy. I think there's a certain, because I think some people think of alchemy as sort of superstition. And that also speaks to the kind of scientific materialist worldview that's, I get it. We don't want to go back to sort of, you know, not talking about witch trials, but like there, there are limits on rationality that I think some people who are just so locked in that scientific worldview and not even just scientists. I mean, frankly, a lot of ed educated secular people, you know, just can't grasp. They can't grasp and it drives them nuts that the mind can't explain it. It drives them nuts the same way a religious fundamentalist can't stand the idea that their book doesn't explain everything. I know, but I feel like, see, that mindset is the thing that I'm looking to undo with my yoga practice. Like, I think that for me even goes beyond just this idea of like rationality and even to like our socioeconomic situation and like the way we're in this like grow or die trap, you know, which is what I talk with Douglas about. Like, to me, this this mindset that it it has to be about growth in order to survive like that we we can't even conceive of some other way that we might have our societies function you know um to me like that's why i'm holding a pretty strong line about it because to me that's where i see yoga actually playing this pretty pivotal fantastic role for humanity in terms of us potentially getting us out of the kind of cycle it seems like we're in of like self destruction <laughs> and dysfunction so to me, it's like, I don't know, I, I, I try not to make really highfalutin statements, but encouraging people to have practices that are more contemplative and more about like some of the things that we've been talking about together today, that to me is like the healing of the planet, you know, and that mindset of that person who's like, you know, like can't deal with the fact that it can't be proved by science, it doesn't exist. Or even like the other side of that, where you have like orthodoxy within yoga, you know, to me, that mindset is sort of the obstacle, <laughs> you know, the undoing of that would kind of solve a lot, I think. Yeah, it's ego, right? It's the righteous mind, you know, that need mm -hmm. to know, because I mean, that talking about our nervous system, 
we know a lot about what that does for people. You know, I don't know if you've been watching Jordan Peterson. I know he's quite a phenomenon now in the U.S., but I've been listening to a bunch of his talks from abroad, and I, I think he's very interesting. I think one thing he points out, and this is sort of his maps of being not his political, but you know, your your mental map of the world really plays an important role for you physiologically, right? So that the difference between your beliefs and the way you act those out in the world, when you when you see a match there between what you think is supposed to happen and then what happens, that downregulates your nervous system, right? So that makes you feel calm. That's order. And then when you get a mismatch, that's chaos. And that's what drives people insane. You know, you challenge their beliefs, you know, you challenge their beliefs, you challenge their way of understanding how the world works. Doesn't matter if they're Christian or atheist, liberal or conservative, it triggers them, especially if they don't have some kind of mindfulness practice. And we see a lot of this in the yoga community. It's funny watching a lot of what's going on from abroad right now, I have to say. I see a lot of this just happening all mm -hmm. across the aisle. <laughs> I'm curious, what does it look like to you? What does it look like to you? A lot of reactivity. You know, and I say this as someone who's like left of center in a way, and I'm sure a lot of people will just take offense at this because if they're so focused on the content of what's happening as opposed to the, the actual form. But in a lot of ways, it looks like sort of the mere reaction to the Tea Party movement in that it's just this lurch into reactivity and it's uh, running to the extreme of the political spectrum. And I think it's unfortunate for a number of reasons, but I think there's some really good stuff happening too. But I don't think lurching into, I think taking a moment to really learn the lessons of maybe what happens and kind of respond thoughtfully is, is always a good thing, right? No matter what the situation. And I don't necessarily see that happening here. Well, I hear you saying, I, I don't know Jordan Peterson too well. I think some of the things he says are interesting. I do think there's some problematic things about him, but I also, I would say that I agree. I think that a left side of the aisle being just as crazy as the right isn't helpful. But I, I would say like, I'm a pretty progressive guy. I'm like a registered independent, but I, I would say that a lot of folks, and I, I would say myself included, really feel very freaked out like our government's been hijacked and you know maybe not everybody listening agrees with that maybe they support what the administration is doing but like to a lot of it feels very frightening it feels like some of the institutions that we have always thought were you know bulletproof or were going to always be there actually feel in question i don't think it's necessarily an overreaction like there's definitely some things going on but what I would say to your point in, and I see this most, like it's why I've mostly been on. I guess, can I make a distinction? Sorry, there's a difference. I, not that it's an overreaction, but there's a difference between overreaction and reactivity. I think that's right. right. Or I think that's true. That's an important distinction. And that's sort of what I'm getting at is reactivity. I agree. I agree. I mean, I, I think that there's a sensible way to talk about things. And, you know, on my podcast, I get accused for all kinds of stuff, you know, like, cultural appropriation because I don't have enough brown skin people on. And so I've been the victim of like, you know, the, the PC warriors that are, you know, the social justice warriors as, as Jordan Peterson. Oh, I followed, I yeah, followed so some I, of I, your I uh, crucifixions. Like the, the victim of that. But at the same time, like I, I'm on their side, which is sort of the crazy part of that, you know, like I, 
what I would say is I just think to kind of bring it back to the yoga thing, I feel like within the yoga world, there's a pretty big difference between folks who are practicing in ways like I was when in my 20s and it's still pretty rampant and what I do now. And just the other day I was doing this class at this yoga center I teach at. And this one woman, she'd been coming to my class somewhat regularly. I know she goes to a lot of classes at that center. And then the other night she was the only person who showed up and we had this like one-to-one practice. And I just decided, cause she's been coming a lot and you know, normally it's this big group class. And then now it was just me and her. So I just, I kind of was a stickler on a few things that she's heard me say a bunch of times, you know? And I just, because it was just heard me, I held her to it in a way that I hadn't before. And at some point she turned to me and she said, you realize that what you're teaching me is the exact opposite of what every other teacher who works here teaches me. And, you know, I was like, I had to kind of acknowledge that, like, I'm trying to work in a way that's not adversarial. So like, I'm not bashing anybody, which is what I used to do. Like I used to like, in order to like feel confident about doing what I was doing, I almost had to like talk ill of what other people do. And I think I've matured from that to a point where I don't, I don't do that now. I just try to present what I'm doing in a positive light and say, Hey, yeah, that's cool. I try this too. You know, like this is a cool thing. Check this out. It's different, you know, and not trying to bash what other people do. But at the same time, what I teach on some very fundamental level does call into question those other types of practice. There's no, there's no way around that. And navigating that fundamental difference is the hard, hard part, you know? And I think that's true in a, in a yoga context and in like our larger political context, you know, like I can't imagine that anybody sees what's going on and thinks it's good. Like to me, I'm like, what? So it bridging that divide in a way that, could be mutual is sort of the challenge. And if I can do that in the context of yoga practice, then I feel like maybe I would stand a chance of doing that in my like outer relationships as well. I think one thing very related to that is, I mean, there are a couple of things that came up as you described that. One, there's uh, an idea of intelligence is being able to hold multiple, even contradictory ideas in your mind at the same time and to entertain them, right? And to find some sort of if not harmony, some sort of way they can contest with each other. I also think that the idea of equanimity came up. And equanimity is something that arises when we're not as attached to particular beliefs or preferences, and we're not as certain about things. And I think that really gets at what's happening right now is people are very, very certain about what's happening. And we see a lot of dogma in the yoga world, right, around certain ways to practice we see this happening in the larger culture. And it's one thing that kind of strikes me. There's people are very certain that their way is the right way to do things and they can't imagine anything else. And look, I'm very sympathetic with you. You know, it's like, and I'm not, I'm totally steering it back to the yoga, not trying to go down the politics road, but you know. Yeah. I I thought we might steer. And and I'm fine with that, but I'm just saying it for the record, like Trump was, I bring it up occasionally only in that it's relevant and it's like, hey, like that's part of the yoga. It's really difficult for me too. Like living outside the US, it's like some ways it's easier in some ways it's harder. It's like, hey, you know, like now we've subjected the rest of the world to this guy, you know, and it's like I'm very cognizant of the fact that the rest of the world's got to deal with him. And um, it definitely is deeply disturbing to me, but 
to me, part of that process is trying to empathize maybe with other people and also just to sort of check in with my own real rigid views about the world and maybe being a little less certain about them. I mean, Ajarn Cha, who is Jack Kornfield's primary teacher in Thailand, would talk a lot about this. You know, he would say, it's uncertain, isn't it? You know, and he tells this funny story how this this nun came to their town and she actually was a practitioner among them. She's meditated and then she'd gone off and she found Jesus and she came back and she tried to convert all the villagers and they were all so upset. You know, they were all so enraged really and they went to a John Chan and they're like, can you believe this? And now she says, Jesus Christ is the only savior and if we don't accept him, we're going to hell. And Ajarn Chah sort of paused and he smiled and he goes, well, maybe she's right. And it's like, that's a deep, <laughs> deep teaching. You know, that gets at the heart of Buddhism. Like that gets at the heart of yoga is like not being as attached to things. And it's like, that gets at what I think is really missing right now. And I empathize with people why it's missing, but... I think that's something that a lot of us aren't taking off of our mats into the rest of our practice. And I guess I would challenge all of us, take things off your mat into your, your practice around kind of these core teachings of, of equanimity and non-attachment. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. I, I mean, I, I agree. I think that, you know, a lot of times these days, as I said earlier, people really do, they want to have some kind of objective metric and definitive answer. And sometimes people are turning to like biomechanics and I think a lot of like the experimentation is really interesting. I also agree with you. I think that for me, my practice has come to serve this purpose that is about kind of this state of, you use the word equanimity and I'll, I'll be happy to use that as well. That, and it does about expectations, you know, and, and how you view the world. I think it all also returns back to this idea of purpose and, and why you're practicing and what you're hoping to get out of it. And if what you're hoping to do is sort of be in the world in a, a harmonious way with the people around you, then it behooves us to develop relationships and practice that lead to that. I remember at one point in my life, I was doing these very intense, uh, like 45 minute seated meditations every day. And in those meditations, I would have these very deep inward blissful experiences and really felt a sense of oneness and that I was like going to these like other realms. But at the same time, uh, my life was kind of a wreck. Like I didn't have good relationships and I was profoundly lonely. And in a way, those meditations were making my life worse because of that. Like if I have bliss inside myself while I'm sitting, but when I go out into my life, everything sucks. My meditating is, is actually making my life suck more. So there had to be some way to bring whatever I do into practice in some kind of actual way into my relationships and my behavior. And that's where we started. That is sort of the tantric viewpoint. Like it's, that's the viewpoint that teaches integration. It, it brings you into your life in a, in a favorable way. It's not a way of transcending beyond it. Right. You know, one thing I'm thinking about is, and I, I've been, it's been on my mind I think more over the last year as I've gravitated towards more the type of practice that you're offering. You know, it's 
it's less aerobic, it's less of a sweat, it's more mindfulness based, it's more contemplative. You know, but I'm also into, I read a lot about sort of nutrition and biohacking and just health and, you know, what are sort of the optimal things for whether it's longevity or other metrics of health, you know, and part of me thinks, you know, okay, this is great. Like this definitely feels right, like the right yoga practice. But then I'm also reading that I should be getting more vigorous exercise, getting my heart rate up, whatever it is, X number of minutes a week. Right. And so I'm starting to wonder, like, is the answer then maybe, and is this something that you, you would say to folks, maybe you shouldn't look to your yoga practice for your aerobic sweat. I'm wondering, do you lift weights, for example? Like, what is your, do you ride a bike? Do you run? Like, what is your exercise regimen look like outside of your yoga practice? And how does that complement your yoga practice or serve a different function? Well, I mean, what I would say is that in my opinion, that if, if what you want is fitness, like physical fitness, I think there's much better places to get it than yoga often. And I, for the longest time, like I never did anything but yoga practice. Like I'm, I don't like running. I don't like lifting weights. I was just, I was that guy who, if you had asked this question to, you know, 10 years ago, I would have said, no, I only do yoga. I don't need anything else. But as I've gotten older, I have found that that that's not true. And like I've often been talking on the podcast about how for like the last six, seven months, I've been doing these pull-ups somewhat regularly. Like I got myself a pull-up bar. And I definitely feel that that doing those pull-ups has done something for me. Like I feel good from doing it. And there's, you know, you see that in all the like movement research yoga Facebook groups about how yoga has no pulling strength in it you know, like all these different things that you don't really find in asana. And so I had that in my mind. Oh, that's true. I've never, and you know, it was true. Like I went to like the playground and my daughter was playing on the playground and they had like these bars and I went to do a pull up and I like couldn't even get up. And I was like shocked. I was like, I'm this yoga guy and I can't even do a freaking chin up. What the, f-? and so I thought I started doing pull ups and I definitely felt better about it. But your question goes to something that I talked with Peter Blackaby about, because I asked him, I was like, based on what he says, this idea that I have in mind about doing pull ups and strengthening up my lats or like bringing more stability to me, like it doesn't really do what I think it's doing in terms of like exercising the muscles that it's a, it's a neural map that I'm giving myself that neural map of being able to do that pull up because I'm doing it. And that neural map may serve me in some way, but this idea, like you're, you're referencing like, Oh, you should be doing this much running. I mean, first of all, as you said earlier, everybody's different. So like the idea that there's going to be some statistical norm that everybody's supposed to follow is already a little bit ludicrous. But then these ideas that we have about like conditioning our bodies and strength training, like, I don't know. I think in the future we're going to discover that we were like, we don't know what the hell we're talking about. (laughs) And I wonder, you know, I, I do think that there's certainly a pleasure now for me to go take a hike or for me to like do these pull-ups. I mean, I don't do them crazy, like five at a time or something, just the pleasurable amount, you know, but the idea that I'm going to condition my body, like, or like almost like, like your body's a car and you're going to tune it up or something as opposed to like a plant that you're growing. And 
for me, like I think of my body much more like a plant now and I want the soil to be good and I want to give it water every day and the sun's going to go up and the sun's going to come down a whole bunch of times. Hopefully we're going to have a good season of growth. Sometimes the weather's going to be shitty and it's going to be, it's going to destroy my whole crops for that year, you know, (laughs) but like that it's more like that relationship rather than like I'm all these parts and I'm going to tune them up and fix them up. So I'm at my optimal strength or whatever, you know. It's so funny. That language is so dominant. And that's, it's totally a reflection of, you know, the industrial age and then the information age, like capitalism, like we're not a machine, you know, like literally, you know, we did, obviously, if you believe in evolution, like we are a living organism, right? We grew out of single celled organisms up through primates into what we are today. And, you know, we're so dependent on nature and people don't even realize it. You know, we're so disconnected from it. I think we don't even know where to begin. And I am hopeful that that's something that yoga can help close that gap. Because when you start to raise your sort of self-awareness, you become more mindful about what you're putting in your body, all these things. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've, I've always been a little bit weird about like when they translate the word yoga, they say yoga means union. I, I never really liked that. I always felt like if there was one... English word that I wanted to equate with yoga, I want it to be nature, like yoga equals nature. And I always feel like I was born in the suburbs and then grew up in the city. And like, I've never actually spent much time around like raw nature. Like now that I've moved to Pennsylvania, I'm like a little closer to it than I've ever been before. But I feel like whatever force that's at work behind like the sun going up and sun coming down and the trees and the wind in the trees, like whatever is behind there is the same force that's at work in my system functioning, like my breath happening and my heart beating. And so the inward attention and the experiencing of your own system is a way of having the same experience that you might get from like, you know, some site of majestic wonder. Like if you were to watch a sunset and your mind just spreads wide open, you're like, oh my God, look at that. Or like, you know, the Grand Canyon or something. You see these places on the earth and this majestic wonder of nature. Well, I believe that you are that same majestic wonder. So the inward experience of practice is bringing us to nature, even if we're not in that environment, like in an external sense, you know? Now that you've moved to Pennsylvania, you're closer to nature. And I know it's it's a little different from you probably because I know you grew up in LA. You've always lived in big cities, but are you a little more aware of a nature deficit that you had living in a big city or no? On some sense, yes, but still, I've only been here for eight months. So I haven't really, it's not like I've gone camping or anything yet. I try not to think of it that way. I try not to think of like the city is not nature and then now I'm in nature. Like it's all nature, you know? But I do know what you mean. Like so much of yoga is about nature. And yet, like if I go into a forest, like I'm clueless, you know, like I recently did a program at the Feathered Pipe Ranch, which is this very famed yoga plate retreat place in Montana. It's like one of the first places ever. All these really esteemed teachers, Judith Hansen, Laster, Eric Schiffman, they've been making like annual meccas there forever. And I went and did a program there and it's in this place in Montana that's just like nowhere. And it's like up against this like natural wildlife preserve. And I like walked up to the edge of the property and there's like signs like beware if you go beyond here. Like, and I realized like 
I've never been that close to that kind of raw nature ever. And I was just completely freaked out. Like, if I go there, I'll, I'll die. Like, I don't know how to take care of myself there. You know what I mean? And it was really humbling. It was really humbling. And in a way, it went to what you were saying earlier in our conversation about rationality almost, or like, like where my mind, like I couldn't go there even. I was like, wow, I have to come back and try to be in that again, you know? So I, I think that there's something about that kind of raw, untouched nature that has that in it. And I guess that's what you're saying, that that deficit, to me, it's not a deficit of nature, but it's a, it's a deficit of that like wonder, that like wonder and awe of like nature and life happening. Like you said, like we were once a conglomeration of cells and now we're these like complex thinking, feeling things sitting on computers at opposite ends of the planet, having a conversation. It's crazy that that's happening. Like it's, is beyond full comprehension, but it's also like totally amazing. And to me, that's really what yoga practice is very much about. Like that sense of wonder, bringing yourself to that is where I find the healing that I needed. And like this useful perspective where I feel like I can be in my life and in the world in a way that feels enjoyable and fruitful totally with you on the sense of wonder and how important that is. And that's such a common theme in different traditions, like certainly in Zen, but kind of returning to, you know, there's a state of childlike wonders often invoked, but it's really what comes along with that is appreciation, right? And gratitude we know is so important from like positive psychology now. So I'm totally with you on that. You know, the one thing I would hit home in terms of the nature part though, I've gotten really interested in this recently as sort of like learning, like I said, about different biohacking fields. And a lot of things I think are though pretty, if we're back to that word, if it's physiological, but it's definitely, they're very much physical or physiological in terms of our problems resulting from a deprivation from our environment. So for example, like not getting enough sunlight, right, is a really serious problem, right? And mm -hmm. when people experience things like mental health, you know, issues that's very much related to a lack of connection to our natural environment, whether it's getting sunlight and what that does to your body or whether it's, yeah, going out in nature. And I think that is connected to the wonder and awe because when you're depressed or you're lonely or you're caught up in your own thoughts, right? Just like your world seems so big. And when you go out in nature, you just realize how small you are. I hear what you're saying. I get what you mean. I was thinking of it a little bit differently, but I would say you're right. Like that is why I moved to Pennsylvania on a very core level. Like if I go outside right now and I just close my eyes and I just see what that feels like it is totally different than if I was in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and I went outside right now and I closed my eyes. Like there's just a vibratory quality to the place. And I needed that to change, you know? So I, I guess I hadn't really been thinking of it as like a, nature deficit, but I think you could think of it that way. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it yeah. wasn't just the cost of the studio and the business considerations. You were feeling a personal pull as well. You know, there was that like- Because that's what level, I remember you yeah. talking about a lot on the podcast. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You're getting to something here because I do think that for me, 
ostensibly it was a lot about that. It was about how the center grew with the neighborhood for seven years, but then at some point it hit like a tilt point. And in order to survive, I was having to do things to make the business run that wasn't really in line with what I wanted to do yoga wise. And that became a problem. And that's sort of what I talked about most because I think that's like the gentrification of the cities and the way that what was this single sole proprietor, single room yoga center model has sort of been eclipsed by like larger scaled models in these A markets. Like that's what I was sort of talking about. But I like where you're going because to me, I think on a more personal level, I talked about this some too, like my health had really depleted because I was just so overextended. And I do think that the environment, the fast-paced environment that I was living in for so long, which I thrived in, like I could have never imagined living somewhere else for as long as I was there, but there is like a, a fundamental thing. And I, I get what you're saying on like a, just like an energetic level, which isn't a word that I use very often, but a neural level uh, being where I am now, it feels uh, less chaotic and yeah, I can walk outside my door right now and in five minutes be on like this totally awesome trail in this amazing park. And it's like become a new ritual. And absolutely, there's like a recharge that happens from that. So I think you're making some good points. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the other elements of your practice, you know, beyond, you know, we've talked quite a bit about asana. I'm wondering you know, even if it's something like fasting, is do you consider like fasting, which was an ancient yogic practice, part of your practice? Is mantra or pranayama a big part of your practice? What really resonates for you aside from asana and meditation? Well, I would say that in the practice I'm teaching, and I do think that this would be attributed to the Deskachar teachings, like I don't really separate out my asana, my pranayama, and my meditation. Like to me, those are all one seamless process. So I don't really think of those as different. And I do all those. I do chant and, you know, I've taken some, you know, we were talking about the the social justice wars. That's one of the things I've taken uh, criticisms for uh, because I'm like a white guy who does uh, Sanskrit chanting. Uh, But for me, like the chanting goes to some of the things that you're talking about, like the sounding, making of sound and the vibratory quality of that and like what it does in my system when I do it is something that I can't totally explain, but I cannot, that I can't deny, you know? So I definitely enjoy chanting. I feel that it, for me, it feels like fundamentally ancient and sacred. And I like that ritual in my life. And I do feel like it does something physiologically to me. I don't know if you've ever seen, if you're, you and your listeners want to do something fun, if you go to YouTube and you search this video called Cymatics, it's this guy, this artist who, who he plays sound through different matter and you get to see what the sound does on the matter. It's awesome. And to me, it's sort of like why I really like chanting. So I do do some mantra chanting and I definitely have pranayama in my asana practice. But to your other part, in terms of food, you know, I am a lacto-ovo vegetarian. I was vegan for a long time, but it felt like it at a certain point, I was felt kind of anemic and didn't, didn't have the energy I needed. And I did incorporate eggs and cheese into my diet. And I've been doing that since, and I'm not at all political about food. Like 
I, I eat what I eat because it helps me feel the way I want to feel. Just like that Swami asked me, like, how do you feel? Like that's sort of always been my gauge. And I do, in a sense, you specifically asked about fasting, but I don't really structure that. Like just sometimes I'm not feeling good. Like if my digestion's getting crappy or something, maybe sometimes like I haven't been good in terms of what I've been putting in myself. And then I'll just like limit what I'm eating for periods of time. So I won't like go cold, like hard, fast, like don't eat anything, but I will just like limit my intake of food for like a couple of days, you know, and just eat a minimum of like, not for pleasure eating, like just for like function eat, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and, and eat real clean, 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 you know, simple foods. So that is certainly something that I do periodically. But again, like I just make those choices on like, that it all comes back to that initial experience I had with that guy in India. They're like, how do I feel? How does eating this make me feel? And then I make my choices based on that. And that applies for pretty much everything in terms of what poses I do. And even like in terms of behaviors, I think like, like you can think it's a bad idea to act like a jerk and still act like a jerk all the same. But like, if you feel stuff, like acting like a jerk feels horrible. So if your behavior becomes more based on how you feel, you tend not to act like a jerk, you know? So I, I sort of feel that way about food too. And I do a little bit of fasting, but I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not like super, I'm such an A-type personality. I'll go totally crazy if I go there, you know, like count all my calories or like structure all my meals and stuff. Like I'll, <laughs> I'm trying to keep myself more listening to my needs and then answering them as, as I can. I get that. That's good. And I hear you. I'm pretty type A too. So, I mean, I think you have to know that. And that's why having sort of a, a more gentle yoga practice, I think can be a good thing for that kind of personality, right? But <laughs> when I was developing that, like in order to get to what I just said, like my practice is really structured. You know, like I do pretty much the same thing every time. I mean, I don't have to, but I I need to kind of know like what poses I'm going to do and how many breaths I'm going to do them sometimes to get myself to practice. So I totally understand it. I think just with food, I've, that's an area of my life where I've, I've not structured it so much. Well, you know, part of the reason I've been experimenting with fasting is one, just reading about the benefits, which are pretty incredible in terms of what it does to you on a cellular level. But also, I realize it's a really good practice for me because I am very attached to food. You know, I think we're all pretty programmed to sort of eat at certain parts of the day, even when we're not very hungry. But I really like to eat. And so, that's it's a good practice for me to work with. But I'm sort of new into experimenting with it. So, I was curious if that's why I asked. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I hear people talking about, you know, ketosis and ketone diets and stuff and like all this stuff. It seems really interesting. Am I burning fat? Am I burning sugar? You know, I mean, I'm pretty much burning sugar as far as I can tell. I don't eat meat, but like I, I wonder about it though. I do think from what I've discovered, like nutrition is just as individual as humans, you know? It is. And I don't. Yeah. And like what works for somebody doesn't work for somebody else. And so I got to try things on, see how they feel, you know? Yeah, totally. I want to go back to something you said a second ago, because I'm not stunned by it, but I, I find it very interesting. I've got to ask for a little elaboration because it is kind of shocking to me. 
So when you talk about chanting and you say you get pushback on that from cultural appropriation, are the critics who say that, do they tend to be, are they Indian or are they white or a different race besides Indian? This one particular instance, it was somebody who was Indian. She was of East Indian. She wasn't born in India, but she is of East Indian descent. And I think she felt sort of like triggered, like to her and had like certain religious affiliations. And I think the criticism was more that I didn't necessarily say anything about it before I did it, which, you know, I mean, honestly, like when I first started going to yoga classes, there was always chanting at the beginning. There was never not chanting. And so, you know, I adopted and it became part of my practice. And sometimes these days I actually do say a little bit about what I'm going to chant and why I'm going to chant it. Just, I don't know, because that's the new world order. <laughs> but I understand that. I'm okay with that, you know. I think the criticisms are sort of like sometimes that, I don't know, some people equate yoga with a religious thing more than others. It's kind of like me. I was born to a Jewish mother. And so some people think of that as like a bloodline and some people think of that as a faith. And, you know, sometimes I think people think of chanting as a bit more of a of a religious faith thing. Although it's interesting because the chants I do aren't really towards specific deities. I'm doing Gayatri Mantra, you know, it's like from the Rig Veda. It's like before the deities. <laughs> so I just think that sometimes these days, and it goes back to your pushback earlier about like the reactivity. I do think that there's that that reactivity has found its way into the yoga world like it was at the college campuses. And sometimes people are just, I don't know, sort of seeming to me to kind of miss the larger and more important point sometimes, you know. And frankly, in terms of specifically chanting, like I met and studied with people who studied with Indian teachers who said precisely that like you're supposed to make it specific to your culture and the chantings don't have religious affiliation and you you can even make the chants your own you know so i feel okay in those choices and and the criticisms honestly like it was like what it's funny how it happens like one or two people will like make comments about it but you know, I had a lot of people come to my defense. So, you know, there's both sides of that equation. I mean, I've got to tell you, it is back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, but this is just the kind of thing to me that is, it's so funny. I mean, it really is hilarious because it's the kind of thing that really happens in America. I mean, I was just in India, you know, on a two week trip with Douglas Brooks. I'm, you probably know him. I know you know Susanna and Amy, some of the guests you've had on study with Douglas Brooks. Yeah, I had Noah Maze on. We talked to some. I know he works with them too. Oh, okay, cool. I didn't know Noah also studied with him, but Douglas is amazing. He leads these annual trips. You know, we went to all these tantric temples in, in southern India. And, you know, just time and again, and it's not like other people weren't thinking certain things, maybe, and kept it to themselves. And we, we did hear certain comments here and there. And you see signs saying, hey. you know, it's like there was so much gratitude and joy on their faces. And I was just like so touched by the warmth of the people. And I find it sad, I guess, when that's people's immediate reaction to people using other ideas from the culture. I've heard some of the arguments why it's a problem. I think they're fundamentally flawed for a number of reasons. One of which is that you can't tell me, I mean, I'm a hit, I was a history teacher before this, and you study the history of the world. The history of the world is just the spread of different ideas and people from one place to another, right? So, different ideas are constantly being appropriated by different people, right? 
and different cultures. And that's always going on, including if you look back to where did these ideas come from, right? About the Vedas, right? Who were these people who were Aryans? What is the language that Vedic most closely maps onto, right? Classical Persian, right? You know, those people did not come from geographical India, right? And of course, that drives people nuts because they think it somehow makes those ideas or what India has produced any less special. And it doesn't. Like it just speaks to the reality of what the history of the world is. It's we're just deeply interdependent, you know, and, and the boundaries we want to draw between each other are are superficial, you know. But the kind of things that people get so offended and triggered by, I have to say, whether it's Indian or yoga world or just things I talk about with other people who live in Asia, it's like, it's not even an Asian thing. It's like, it's, they're American things. It's Mm -hmm. Americans have deserve, have earned this particular kind of infatuation with getting offended about things. And I'm not sure why that came about. I mean, I know part of the reason and I understand it, but some of it's just gone totally off the rails, I think. Well, I mean, I think that's like another hour conversation about neoliberal <laughs> you know, stuff. But I mean, what I would say is that I hear what you're saying about people getting offended. I, I don't know that that's specific to America because I do think there's other places in the world where that happens too. I think America, it's just like everything's so magnified. And sort of going back to your, your sort of talking about people accusing me and folks who are taking yoga teachings and making them their own as some sort of appropriation. You know, I, I had this talk the other day with a woman, her name's Prabha Sinha, and she she does this uh, Lehigh Valley Yoga Festival here where I moved to in Pennsylvania. And, you know, she she spent her whole life in India and then moved here in the 80s. She's like, oh, 70 something, I think maybe. And she she was saying all these interesting things to me about oh, Americans and Westerners, they have so many ideas about yoga. I don't always know what they're talking about. You know, it's like this idea that women weren't allowed to do yoga. She was like, what are they talking about? Like, we were the ones who made all the food. We were always doing the yoga, you know? Like, she just had these, like, great ways of sort of thinking about it that sometimes when you have Westerners trying to defend (laughs) the birthright of Hindus, and then you talk to a Hindu, and they're like, what are they talking about? You know, like... It sort of goes to what you're saying. And I, I think that there are some areas where there is some call for outrage, you know, like I, I support some of the... Yeah. Can you the give movements. an example? Well, you know, I think that... Because I don't know, see a lot of this stuff. So I don't doubt there would be too. And, and obviously you should be going back. I mean, let's make it relevant to yoga, okay? Because yeah. right now there's huge scandals in the Ashtanga yoga community because... It has been revealed and without any question and people who want to make it a question, I think it's problematic that, you know, Patabi Joyce was sexually molesting women pretty much his whole career. And people were silenced when they brought it up and people knew and didn't say nothing. And now we've had this big Me Too movement. And yes, that has gone too far in many instances. I'm in agreement with you. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that, like, I think there hasn't been enough gray area, you know? And, and too much reactivity. But at the same time, you know, women have been mistreated by men throughout history and that there's this new phenomena happening in many ways is important. And, you know, 
I just had somebody on the podcast recently who, you know, is an authorized Ashtanga teacher. And I was asking them straight out, you know, like there are people who are taking down their pictures of Patabi Joyce off of their altars, you know, because of they don't want to be revering a sexual molester. And frankly, had he been called out and held accountable for sexual molestation in the past, like other professions would have, if you weren't a guru and you didn't have like cult status around yourself or something, uh, you probably wouldn't have kept your job. And so all these people who've built careers off of their connection to Patabi Joyce and the Ashtanga system wouldn't even have that. Like I had one guy on and he said, you know, if he'd been called out years ago, I wouldn't even have a practice. So to at this point sort of say, okay, well, how do we go forward? Because there's all these people who are really getting a benefit from a stronger vinyasa practice. I know people that it does for them what my practice does for me, even though I don't really agree with those forms sometimes, it works for them and I would never take it away from them. But at the same time, like that's going to have to, the history has to be written accurately about this person. We can't make him an avatar, you know? To me, I think, I really think that there is a legitimate element to what's happening and an important element. And it's an evolution of humanity, I think. You know, I've got two little girls. I'm a dad. And, you know, the fact that I could go out and take a walk right now and not worry at all, but if my wife did, it would probably not be okay. That remains an issue, you know, like the suppression of feminine, if you want to think of it that way, goes back to like, dualistic and non-dualistic yoga principles do, you know, like that separation of Purusha and Prakriti equals women not being of equal stature or of mutual status as men, like men controlling nature and controlling women because we're so afraid of the uncertainty, basically. Part of that facing the uncertainty is this controlling of nature, controlling of mm -hmm. women. So I'm all for undoing that, but I want to say that, but at the same time, I'm also with you. And again, I've been victim of what seems to me like people just missing the boat on the whole thing, you know? And I, I totally just want to chime in and agree with you. In fact, when I mentioned the reactivity, at no point in any of the conversations, I mean, we talked about earlier and I kind of had like the free speech, you know, controversies in mind on college campuses and things like that. And we alluded to cultural appropriation, but I wasn't even thinking about the Me Too movement, which I have to say, I mean, I saw that just as actually, that was the opposite in my case. I saw it as uniformly a good thing until I had some people who actually lived in the US, men and women sort of pointed out that there it was a little problematic that, you know, there are certain instances of it going too far. But that's also going to happen when you just have a broad-based movement, right? It's not hierarchical. It's not controlled from the top. So it's overwhelmingly a good thing. And it is pent up. Yeah. No, and it's pent up. You know, people have been mistreated for a long time. So yeah, I think even I like to hold like a optimistic view that even everything that's going on with Trump in the end will be a net positive if it swings back more sent into a more reasonable place, you know, like I think there's a lot of people who are like, holy crap, it actually does matter who the president is. <laughs> and I think you've got a lot more people being active and hopefully there could be a net positive from it. Hopefully. I heard a really interesting talk on this actually. So I was at a Ram Das retreat. This is like in early December and this guy came and spoke who Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman had invited him to speak. He was like a, a white guy shaman. So he actually spoke to the issue of like 
culture appropriation and why it wasn't because he was like, you know, African. And anyways, that was an interesting thing. But he also, main thing was he talked about Trump and he said, I, I hear a lot of people at this retreat blaming a lot of their problems on one person and his name is Donald Trump, you know, and he kind of talked about basically Trump through a Jungian lens, like what Trump represents is the shadow. And if you're not willing, if, if you're not willing to confront your shadow, things aren't going to change. And if you want everything to be nice and easy all the time, if you're not willing to go through some real turbulence, you're not going to get the change that you say you want. And he sort of talked about what it was like growing up in apartheid South Africa. And I thought his message was very timely. And this is where I think it can be very helpful to get different perspectives. I'm kind of always aware of this as as an American who lives abroad. And it's, it's part of the role I try to serve. And I guess part of it's just sharing my reflections out loud. But I also think it can be helpful to some people to share a perspective that sort of kind of maybe gets part of your culture, but is outside of it. Because I think in a lot of ways, though, we're a very diverse country, like we're still Americans, right? We may be racially diverse. And yeah, it's a big country. There are all these subcultures for sure. It varies a lot depending on where you grew up and who you are, you know, your race, your gender, all these different things matter. But we're still Americans. And I do think it's helpful to get a different perspective on our situation sometimes. I think that's helpful for any culture. And to hear that from this guy coming from another culture who had who had been through a lot, I thought was a really timely message that even I needed to hear. I, you know, I caught myself back in the US, you know, bitching about, you know, Trump to other supporters. And I was like, you're right. You know, I need to kind of hold myself accountable and be more mindful. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I mentioned my trip to India in 1998, and that was one of the first times, I mean, the first time actually I had ever left America, really. I just, I never even thought of myself an American as an American before that. But once I was there, it was like blatantly obvious me with my like blue passport and my $80 sunglasses, like that I was this American, you know? And in certain ways, I actually came to appreciate America more, you know? (laughs) Like it's... Like plumbing and stuff's great, you know. It's a beautiful thing, right? Right. Um, All those things you take for granted. So, like, I used to really be like bashing on America, but I, I came to understand, like, I'm grateful. Like, that's quite a blessing that I was born in America. But I have to say, like, you're abroad, so that's interesting to me. Like, I just feel like, to me, I feel like Trump's an embarrassment. Like, he just, like, well, I was. He is. You know, like, <laughs> you're right even, about that. Even if, you mean... didn't, even if you didn't like. President Obama and and believe in his policies. And, you know, like, I wish he had been more progressive or whatever. Like, he could speak, he could write, you know, like, to me, like, that's important. I'm like a writer, you know, so to me, it's kind of embarrassing. And I just hope, and maybe you being there is helpful in that, that like people elsewhere in the world don't think that all American, that there's still a sense of like the diversity that you're talking about, you know, that we don't. I don't know that we're are we're not so tarnished by like the lack of civility and like just like the I don't know that what seems to to me to feel like an ignorance level like I'm hoping for us to like move forward and it this feels like a little bit of a stumbling block. It's very embarrassing. You know, it was embarrassing. I was abroad when Bush was president and that was a different kind of embarrassment and then 
Yeah, I, I say it to my friends who are Republican as well. And it's something I say this while also really believing in like a deep importance of trying to understand what, how the other side thinks, you know, hmm. and that the other side is not a monolithic side other than any more than our side's a monolithic side. And I think that's really, really important and not othering people, not being like you are other than us. And at the same time, just as I wish there's certain things, maybe we were talking about more examples on the left that people might be a little more aware of. It's like, yeah, my friends who are Republicans, like, okay, I'm hearing you. And I just, I wish, and I can acknowledge some of the legitimacy of that, even if I don't agree with you, but I just, I wish you could see what it looks like to have this be our representative to the rest of the world. You know, and some of them get it and some don't, but you're right about that. I mean, it is embarrassing. Like it doesn't continue to be any less embarrassing on that note. Yeah. And that's not a good note for us to end on. I would say like to me, where I'm remaining, as I said, optimistic is that I think that there's like these pendulum swings and I've seen them, you know, even going from Bush to Obama to like, now we're back to Trump. It's like these swings, you know? And I'm just, I'm sort of hoping that there's some cracks. So you sort of see some green shoots. And, you know, I talk about this on the podcast all the time. And it's in the yoga world and outside the yoga world, like new models, more collective models, more horizontal structures for business and stuff. And I just, I, I think that I see green shoots that make me feel like, oh, there is potentially a way for humanity to find its way in a better direction than it feels like we're in now. And sometimes I think of it in like the, try to think of it in like a long-term perspective way. So, you know, it's part of like a growth process and, you know, hopefully this, as I said, will, will lead to a more net positive. Got to, got to look at it that way. You know, I can't just feel all is lost. <laughs> totally. I don't feel that way at all. I think, like you said, it's whether you want to call it pendulum or cycles, that absolutely is the way systems work, including political systems. And I also think part of it in terms of how we, what do we do as, as someone who has to live through this cycle? You know, I think we should take this, especially, I mean, it's sort of a call, I think, to those of us who practice yoga, mindfulness, it's a call for us to double down on our practice. Hmm. You know, all this talks, you know, all the language about being triggered and this and that, like, I think we need to view, and I think there are exceptional circumstances, obviously, you know, when people have gone through intense trauma, for example, right? Like in their lives. But I think in general, all of us are, are triggered by things, right? It's just a term that is getting thrown around a lot now, but we're all triggered by different things. And we need to be conscious of the fact for those of us who are practitioners of yoga or mindfulness that when we get triggered, that's a lapse in our practice, right? That's when our mindfulness has broken down. And I think right now is, is a real wonderful opportunity to actually practice, you know, take what you're learning off your mat into the real world and like, see how well, like all of those seated meditations practice have actually been doing something for you, you know? Well, Jay, I just wanted to thank you so much for your time. This was really cool for me as someone who has really enjoyed your podcast for a long time to have you come on my show. So I want to thank you so much. And I also want to give you a chance to tell people about 
your podcast and any upcoming events or workshops that you might have. Cool, man. Well, thanks. I mean, first of all, let me just say this has been super fun. Like, I love this stuff. This kind of conversation floats my boat, and I'm I'm up until midnight talking to you, and I don't I'm, I could, wouldn't rather be doing anything else. So I think it's awesome. It's a shame we ran into some technical difficulties. I'm glad we're jumping back on to finish up, and I just I think it's great. I appreciate that you listened to my podcast and have like picked up that baton and found where you want to have conversations and bringing that to people. I just as we talked earlier, I think the podcasting is a pretty fantastic medium. And I just, I really dig that other people are doing it too. So I'm glad to know you're out here doing it. I'm happy to have been on. And yeah, for anybody listening who wants to check out my stuff, I've got the podcast that comes out every week. I've got a monthly blog. I've got a bunch of online yoga video stuff too. All of it's at jbrownyoga.com. Awesome. Thank you, Jay. Really appreciate it. Had a lot of fun. and. We'll talk again soon. All right, man. Cool. Take it easy. All right. You too. Take care. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hackingtheself. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.